This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. The war in Ukraine. For people living in the West, especially in the U.S., it's important to understand. This is our war. This is not Ukraine's war. Douglas London is a retired CIA senior operations officer. Here's why he says this is our war. This is Putin attacking one of Europe's largest countries, a country that was aligning itself with the West and moving towards a pluralistic society. So what's the Kremlin's end game? Putin is not going to stop there. London says the West has tried everything in the book. We kept looking for resets, giving him off-ramps, face-saving ways. He says the only thing Putin wants is total domination. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. We promised you this a couple of weeks ago. It's an interview with Douglas London. He's a former CIA senior operations officer. He's retired from there. And he's also the author of the book, called The Recruiter. During our conversation, he told me the way we should look at the war in Ukraine is not as their war in a distant place with no impact on us. He said, this is our war and we need to be concerned about why it's happening. He said, because this war was brought against Ukraine in large part because of the U.S. This is how our conversation started. Douglas, uh, thank you for talking to us today. You wrote an, I'm not sure if this is an op-ed or just uh, an opinion piece or, or just an analysis or what, in the Hill newspaper online a few days ago, and uh, you were talking about the problem that Ukraine's intelligence has at this point, specifically uh, the fact that um, President Zelensky has sort of shaken up his intelligence apparatus. And I'm wondering if you could tell us um, what you think led to that shakeup. Well, there's a valid counterintelligence concern uh, when it comes to Ukraine. The Russians have a lot of access and history there over the years, and they were working with the SBU, which is the internal security service, the civilian service, for quite a number of years. I don't know necessarily that the timing of uh, Zelensky's firing of Botnikov, the uh, the SBU chairman or director, uh, is tied to any revelation of a new counterintelligence failing or maybe just the political weight that he's been under, given the criticisms that the SBU and his former chief have sustained, uh, particularly for some of the failures in the early part of the war to preempt the the Russians in their advance, particularly in the south, in the city of Kherson, where the SBU had the responsibility for destroying a bridge, which the Russians wound up using for a rather expeditious seizure of the city. But the problems there with the SBU in particular are historic. 
Uh, it was slower than other Ukrainian organizations to seek to remodel itself along a more progressive and Western line. And it's always been rather suspicious. And the target for reforms uh, among Ukrainian politicians and, and the population, which have been slow to come about. Yeah, would you uh, dig a little deeper into that, um, that the slow nature of the reforms as far as that organization go? Maybe just give us a little bit of history about the SBU's connection to the Soviet Union and the Kremlin. Well, the SBU is modeled very much after the KGB and in particular the KGB's old second chief directorate, which was responsible for counterintelligence and investigations. And as with most institutions in the former Soviet republics, Ukraine being no different, a lot of those agencies were still run by folks who were holding the same job in the former Soviet Union. So the composition of the management and the workforce of the SBU when uh, Ukraine got its independence in the 90s were former KGB officers. And they simply just put on a different hat and now they were Ukrainian KGB officers, but retitled as, as the SBU. The SBU though in particular was uh, rather uncomfortable with the West. Uh, I think its cadre was still very much in the KGB model. The organization was created uh, to replicate the old KGB model. And they were rather suspicious of the West, the CIA I know in particular. And uh, as we, we reached the new millennium and post 9-11 and uh, even the Orange Revolution in the mid-2000s, which the SBU did contribute towards, it was still very much connected nostalgically and practically with the Russians. The Russian FSB, their internal security organization, still had a presence in the SBU, providing training and support and guidance up until Maidan in 2014. There was a great deal of sympathy. So they were not uh, the most reliable service for the Western community to work with, which I think accounts very much for why uh, U.S. officials have said that the U.S. intelligence community primarily is working with the GUR, which is the Russian military intelligence service in Ukraine. So you said they're working with the GUR, which is the Russian military intelligence, but did you mean to say the Ukrainian military intelligence? I'm so sorry, yeah, the Ukrainian military, military intelligence. The Russian intel service is the GRU. It's uh, almost the same name. Yeah, I can see how that would be an easy mistake to make, but um, <laughs> so tell us uh, what's different about the GUR uh, as as it, as it relates to the GRU, as, aside from the fact that they're from two different countries and these two <laughs> countries are at war right now. Well, I, I think what the GUR sought to do was uh, be more open to interaction with the West. A lot of Western support and cooperation, training, military training, intelligence support and training uh, was channeled into the GRU, which was more receptive to remodeling itself and to try to look more like a Western government agency. It has a, uh, an active social media, an online footprint. It uh, tries to have a, a very pro-nationalistic narrative. Uh, it's far less suspicious of Western services with whom it's received a great deal of training and support over the years. So I think the experience, particularly post-2014, the training and cooperation from that time up until the February 2022 Russian invasion or, or offensive, we might say, really created more confidence in the exchange and the cooperation. And that's not to say the Russia, uh, the Ukrainian GRU is not itself vulnerable 
to Russian counterintelligence uh, efforts and cyber attacks and penetrations. Like all of Ukraine, the Russians had the advantage of being there, of having historic relationships, of having access day in and day out to people in these Ukrainian institutions to target people for intelligence collection and also for influence. But it's been the better bet that Western services and principally the U.S. intelligence community has had over the years. So do you think that the reason that this shakeup has taken place uh, in the Ukrainian uh, SBU um, has, I guess, more to do with the fact that there were leftovers, people inside this organization that might actually have been working against Ukraine because of their loyalties towards Russia? Or do you think it was just a matter of some simple housekeeping? Hey, we need to figure out who's where, who's doing what, and and get people to think along the lines of where this country, Ukraine, is now and where it's going, as opposed to just the status quo or business as usual. It's a confluence of those events, JJ. Uh, a lot of that generation that left the Soviet KGB have since retired and moved on. But and as much as the Russians were providing training and had a presence over the years, even the younger generations of the SBU would have been more susceptible to their influence and perhaps targeting by them. Um, President Zelensky and the Ukrainian government has gone on record about the number of treason and, and, and counterintelligence cases. I think it numbers over 1,200 at this point. And that's not all one specific institution. That's across the government agencies and, and across the population. But I, I think the SBU particularly was slow to reform, was slow to realign itself. Uh, his choice was uh, a childhood friend and his campaign manager, but not really a career government service. And, you know, bureaucracies in any country operate according to their own rules. So he didn't really have a network or experience to, to do that. Ukrainian parliament had passed legislation to try to reform the uh, SBU to get it to focus its mission away from aspects which probably gave it too much flexibility to get into political business in terms of who to investigate and why and to whom it was supposed to respond to. The KGB historically um, in Russia or in Soviet Union responded to the Communist Party. So there was no Communist Party. There was a, a government for the SBU to respond to. But it's hard for some of these organizations used to operating secretly in a closed society to then operate in an open society. So uh, from what we've seen publicly revealed, I think Zelensky probably had a threshold for the criticism the SBU was taking from the public, from the parliament. I think the number of counterintelligence cases and treason cases continue to tick up. And even if they're not within the SBU itself, that's their primary responsibility is counterintelligence. They're the lead agency for that, for CI and, and for investigations. And clearly uh, the numbers were disturbing. And whether there was a non-public component that we're not aware of, that the number of counterintelligence cases within the SBU was becoming too much to bear. Um, I just think his choice to lead the SBU was probably not the right person, particularly for a wartime Ukraine. Certainly it's someone he could trust that wasn't going to use the SBU against him, but neither was he well-equipped to really take on the problems of the SBU. One of the things that 
Vladimir Putin wanted to achieve by in, invading Ukraine again the second time was to essentially take Volodymyr Zelensky out of the picture, essentially um, remove him from leadership. And I'm wondering, do you think that this organization, these people within this organization, uh, would have been in a position to help him uh, and Russian intelligence and the Russian military do that? To a point, they would have certainly been a contributor to it. They're an internal counterintelligence agency. They don't necessarily provide all the protection. Uh, Zelensky has his own protection elements and own protective intelligence elements uh, around him. But if if you're the Russians and you're looking to take down the Zelensky government, even to enable doing your doing it by force, which is what the plan was about going into Kiev, basically decapitating the government, you need multiple institutions. The Russians have had that kind of presence over the years that they could reach broadly across Ukrainian agencies, the military, right down to civil and public affairs, which would have been the work of the Russian FSB. Because interesting enough, uh, Russia assigned what's traditionally duties for a foreign intelligence agency to the FSB, an internal intelligence agency for Ukraine and all the Soviet, former Soviet republics. I think that's more telling about the way Putin looked at the former republics, that they were still, in his mind, parts of his greater empire, parts of Russia, that he would assign it to his internal organization. The FSB would have tried to use their official presence over the years in Ukraine to identify agents across civil, public affairs, the military, and the SBU itself. So it would have been a component, but it wouldn't have been where the Russians would have placed all their money, but certainly an important player in their strategy. One of the things that emerged when this war, this phase of this war, started in February of this year, one of the things that emerged was the fact that uh, Russian intelligence and the military had been mired in deeply in corruption. Um, many people knew that before and had talked about it before, but the inability of Russia's uh, intelligence to to tell or to figure out uh, how to do what it wanted to do in Ukraine, even though they'd been telegraphing that they were going to do this, do that, um, but the inability to figure out how to get it done suggested that one, they, you know, perhaps as a result of this corruption. Uh, we're no longer positioned to do that kind of thing, but also it suggested as well that um, th- th- they had problems, internal problems themselves, with the decision making and what they were planning to do. So, what do you think was the problem with the Russian military intelligence and, I guess, uh, the 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 whole intelligence picture for Russia when it came to this? invasion in in February of this year. You know, corruption's been an affliction that Russia suffers and goes back to the days of the Soviet Union. And uh, the way Putin has run his government, which is so replete with former intelligence officers, colleagues of his, or at least those from the KGB or former KGB in whom he had greater trust and reliability, that proliferation of corruption is simply a way of life permeated, I think, every aspect of Russian bureaucracy in terms of the military, in terms of military hardware. But the intelligence factor beyond 
questioning the competence of the Russian SV, SVR, which is its foreign intelligence service, GRU, its military intelligence service, and the FSB, the internal service, which had the mandate for Ukraine, is sort of the cult of personality that Putin has created. Who is going to tell Putin bad news? Who is going to provide intelligence assessments that are going to contradict what Putin believes? And he very much believes heart and soul in a lot of what he's doing. And it seems a natural outgrowth that the intelligence would align itself to that. So that the FSB and the other intel services were not providing the most accurate picture, not only of Ukraine and what its resistance was going to be, the cohesion of the West and NATO in particular, the fact that Germany and Poland of all countries were going to take a strong stand against Putin and this offensive, because you're correctly pointing, it's, it's an extension of an earlier invasion, isn't it? I think that he didn't cre exactly create a society of people who are going to you know, speak truth to power. And, and I think Putin very much started to buy into his own theories and propaganda, which you know happens with power and ultimate power corrupting, isn't it so? So the intel services certainly weren't equipped to tell him bad news, even if they were finding it. And that trickles down because it goes all the way down to the collectors on the street and the analysts who were in the cubby holes, you know, putting together the information. They don't want to get in trouble with their bosses, who in turn don't want to get in trouble with their bosses. So he wasn't getting a real accurate picture. And that's sort of going to corrupt the intelligence throughout the cycle. By the time it gets to Putin, he's getting what he wants to hear, which in the case of Ukraine and the case of the posture of the West wasn't the reality. Ukraine says Russia's lost 40,000 troops. Um, Western intelligence suggests that it's perhaps closer to 15, maybe 20,000. But either way, that is a heck of a lot of people that this military has lost. And a lot of it is on the shoulders of bad intelligence. A lot of it is on the shoulders of bad leadership in the military. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that a lot of the people I'm told that are being thrown at this war are just not prepared for it. These are people that have been conscripted. Um, you know, and, and I heard Richard Moore from the, the head of MI6 say the other day, these are not middle-class kids from St. Petersburg, but these are poor kids that come from the outposts of Russia uh, from the Far East and in and other places, Chechnya perhaps, I don't know. But um, the question I want to ask you is, Russia's, despite having an early edge in this war, appears to be losing right now. And it appears as though they're losing badly. Maybe not in terms of the the landscape, where they're positioned, what they've taken, and and, and and what they're losing. But based on what they were, what they set out to do, and what they weren't able to do, and where they stand now, not being able to to use, they don't have precision weapons. They're running out of them. They're running out of troops. Um, they can't hold territory. So the question I want to ask you is: Does this look to you at this point like Russia is going to be able to hold out much longer in this war, uh, or are they going to need to step back? So Putin's calculus, and I think uh, Director Burns has said this uh, himself, as well as Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor, is that the West does not have the same pain tolerance as Russia does, that it will become distracted or exhausted uh, or just forget about Ukraine. 
he's not necessarily wrong. Those are all real vulnerabilities, I think, that exist. Uh, but you speak of numbers and whether it's 15,000 or 40,000 dead, the Soviet Union lost over 40,000 dead in Afghanistan over a war that was years and years. This is months. So if we take the the 15,000 case, which still you triple that for the number of casualties, those are just ridiculous numbers. Could you imagine the United States, the president of the United States, explaining to the public how we've lost 15,000 troops? We lost 7,000 combat dead uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria over 20 years. So Putin is not wrong when he says Russia has um, probably a greater tolerance and greater fear in the closed society that it is to sustain these losses. But it's not uh, uh, it's not sustainable over the long run. And the question is, how does Putin define winning and losing? And you made a really great point, you know, JJ. How does he even define victory? Certainly his goals have not been met. We can see that clearly since his goal was capitulate, you know, get the Ukrainians to capitulate in 48 hours, maybe, or at least take Kiev. He's had to redeploy, regroup, reorganize. And every time he does that, he has to adjust his narrative. Despite the constraints, despite the, the closed society, public opinion does matter over time, that saturation. And you made also other points in that he's tried to disperse the pain by bringing in Chechens, by bringing in minorities, Russian minorities anyway, to, to fight the war. So it isn't the the traditional Russian middle class, if there there is one. But how does Putin define victory? Does he define a war of attrition that he thinks he could extend for months or years as victory? Or is it clearly the battlefield? Because, yeah, he's taking losses on the battlefield, and we could define it and say, well, he lost this battle and lost that battle. But as we discovered, we won a lot of battles in Afghanistan. We won a lot of battles in Vietnam. But we lost those wars. If you look at it from stepping back strategically, he's losing a lot of battles. But if the West breaks first, if Ukraine breaks first, then he wins the war. So calculating victory and loss today in this multidimensional warfare and hybrid warfare and the importance of information is really a lot more subjective and tricky. So one last thing. Um What's the headline here when you look at this war, how it's gone, where it's going, um, you know, and then, of course, the reality of the world we live in today. What's the headline of this war and and what people need to know and understand about what's taking place? I think for people in the United States and and the West in general, this is our war. Uh, This is not Ukraine's war. This is Putin attacking one of Europe's largest countries, a country that was aligning itself with the West and moving towards a pluralistic society. And Putin is not going to stop there. Uh, He's been very transparent over the years about his goals. We kept looking for resets, giving him off ramps, face saving ways, trying to bring him into the world economy and make Russia so interdependent on the West that it would seem not to be in its benefit to jeopardize that. But Putin is from another time and another error. 
He's a KGB trained and conditioned intel officer who sees not so much a question of legacy, but what he believes is Russia's due and what Russia is owed, this victimization that Russian history has at times had over the last 200 years. So when you look at Putin, thinking in terms of our logic and practicalities, you've really got to dispense with that and look through his eyes. He seeks to have Russia be an empire, a dominant empire that could take what it wants, when it wants. And that means taking from us. And that means we are fighting a war right now through Ukraine that uh, we would have to fight ultimately anyway if Putin is not stopped. And I think the gravity of that has still not yet been embraced and accepted. It's more about, look what he's doing to those poor Ukrainians. It's look what he's doing to us and look what he will want to do to us if he's allowed to. And my very last thing, you wrote a book about a year ago. It's called The Recruiter. Tell us about that book. Well, that book spoke to juxtaposing what the CIA transitioned to after 9-11 to what it was, which really was an elite spy service, an analytics service that had a charter for covert action, but covert action when the last possibility and no one else could do it, and it was to avoid greater wars. My book spoke to, here's the art of espionage, and here's how it has changed in 20 years, where the CIA aligned itself with much more a paramilitary mission to support the counterterrorism battle, which became the focus of not just the agency, but all U.S. national security, and how it had to make certain reforms, and reforms in terms of tradecraft, investing back again in being an espionage service, in diversity to reflect what we are as a society, which actually makes us richer to operate in every clime and place abroad where an old white guy like me is not going to be as effective as someone who looks the part, who speaks the language, who has the history. And frankly, I, I've been kind of encouraged by some of what I've seen the agency doing in the last two years, by its being more agile, more aggressive, more focused on foreign intelligence collection, and embracing as well inclusion and diversity. So, you know, I, I'd like to think that Director Burns read my book and went, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, but more likely, it's because these were all the right choices to make. Uh, and the agency still has some way to go. It still has some accountability for some of its sins of the last 20 years. But it's an amazing organization, which my book speaks to. It's an art of intelligence that it practices extremely effectively. And I think and ideally we're back on that, that pathway again. Well, thank you. Um, sounds like a great book. Um, to that uh, issue about diversity and, and where the, the agency is going, you pr perhaps know this better than anybody. This didn't just start recently, within the last couple of years since George Floyd and all of the, all of the concerns that have arisen in the last few years. I remember speaking almost 17 years ago to uh, an executive at CIA named Ricky Jasper. And one of the things that we talked about um, was CIA efforts at that time to bring in a more diverse workforce to look more like the people that um, it was trying to engage, deal with, and, of course, America. So uh, I'm not surprised that this, this is happening at CIA. Uh, Douglas London, thank you for taking time to talk with us today. Thank you, JJ. Pleasure as always. 
That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode, we stay on this all-important topic of the war in Ukraine. Even if we believe that Putin is fatiguing, even if the intelligence may point that way, uh, that certainly we don't count him out until it is over. Abigail Spanberger, former CIA operative and current member of Congress from Virginia's 7th District. I think that it's incredibly important that we continue to have our eyes clearly focused on what is happening in Ukraine uh, and that it continues to stay in the forefront of our media coverage, of our discussions on Capitol Hill and, and certainly throughout the country. And in her own backyard. What I find interesting is that across the district, I routinely hear um, continued calls for American engagement and American support of our Ukrainian allies. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, Cobra Kai fans, come hear what Peyton Liss has to say on Kicking It With The Coves this week. Peyton plays one of my favorite characters, Tori Nichols. Our stunt coordinators came up with a sort of training background for each character. Mm, like, that's interesting. Uh, Tori had done a little kickboxing before, so that kind of came in when I first tried to take on Miguel and why I was cocky enough to think that, you know, I could come in here and I could just make an entrance. Listen to Kicking It With The Coves now at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast One, and wherever you can sweep your leg and get the podcasts.